Welcome to the Imago Day podcast. I'm Lewis, and I'm here with Joe, as always. What's going on, guys? And today, we, there's a series of conversations about Plato, and I've always heard the name. But, Joe, my first question before we get into those conversations, what's the significance of Plato to the Christian oh, man, today? Yeah, well, you know, Plato, just on his own, it's just he's just such a significant figure in the in the history of Western philosophical thought. He was a student of Socrates, and Plato himself started the first uh, classical Western uh, university uh, called the Academy, and, and he himself had many students, one in particular, Aristotle. The reason why I think Plato is such an important figure for the Christian today is that he provides for us a metaphysical and ethical vision that lines up so nicely and supplements, as it were, so nicely what we see already in the gospel and in the scriptures. Um, Plato, I I like to think of Plato uh, as a resource, as a tool uh, philosophically that can speak beautifully, but yet potently uh, to, I don't even know if that's the word potently. <laughs> that's a word. It sounds like a word. I it like sounds it. like a word. <laughs> with, with potency, let's say that, um, to, to some of the sort of philosophical quandaries of our time, whether or not we're aware of them. Mm. And many of the, um, concepts that he brings forth as a philosopher, Plato, who, by the way, lived roughly four centuries before the advent of Christ, before the first coming of Jesus. Um, um, is such really helpful in helping us to think through the content of our own faith. Mm-hmm. So when we think of the Trinity, when we think of Christ being fully God and fully man, the question is, how can we faithfully think about those revealed truths in a way that at once honors those truths, but gives us greater conceptual clarity um, so we can um, go further and do something with those truths. And and Plato's philosophy uh, is a great tool in that, as it is with many other philosophers. But, but Plato, as one person says, he really all other philosophy following Plato is a footnote to Plato. You know, to speak of his his gravity and sounds and like a big deal. Yeah, he's huge. Plato's Plato. He, he's a huge. He's I'm a huge. I like that. That sounds better. Yeah. Plato. 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 Mira Plato. Mira Plato. <laughs> From what I understand, he recorded the teachings of Socrates. And that is also what is what made him a big deal. Is that absolutely, correct? Absolutely. Absolutely. One of the key uh, followers, one of the key disciples of Socrates. Uh, much of what we know of Socrates comes through the pen of Plato, through Plato's dialogues. Uh, his first five dialogues uh, deal exclusively with the life of Socrates, particularly towards the end of his life. For instance, Plato's apology um, uh, is Socrates on trial. It's rec- and a recounting of that. Wow. And, and, and the reason, re- reason why it's called apology is because he's offering a defense. It comes to the Greek transliteration, apologia or apologia, which means defense or to give an account. And uh, that dialogue, you, you just, just, it's just so beautiful. Uh, the way Plato captures Socrates' testimony in court, how he defends himself as a philosopher. And so, yeah, uh, we, we know for the most part that Socrates was against writing anything down when it came to philosophy because he didn't want um, his own philosophy to be taken in uh, and and kindly kind of blindly followed. Socrates really believed that philosophy should be a live and active discourse between two or more people. Wow. 
Plato, in a sense, honors that vision by writing in dialogical form. But nevertheless, he's writing it down. Yeah, he's like, it's so, too good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We, so m- much of what we know of Socrates comes from the pen of Plato. Not exclusively, there are others, but but for the, for the most part, it's Plato. And, and he was a key figure there. Wow. And it changed Plato's life. Changed Plato's life. He was being groomed to be a, a political statesman. But once he saw how Athens really uh, took Socrates apart and came against him, Plato was like, I'm out of here, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and in essence, uh, picks up the vision of Socrates and continues as a philosopher. So, but theologically and, and with regards to our own discipleship, Plato has much to offer by way of conceptual analysis, okay. and helping us to think through the faith and really helping us to get a hold of a number of other experiences that, that we may have just simply as human beings. Can you give a quick summation of the cave for those who don't? Oh man, yeah. So the cave, the allegory of the cave is this beautiful story that describes the contemporary world. And it goes something like this. Imagine a, imagine a cave where folks are imprisoned in this cave and they are facing a wall and there are shadows projected onto a wall because there's a flame behind them and people using images or whatever. The thing is, is that they were, in a sense, born into this context. They don't know anything else. So they don't know that they're just looking at a wall and looking at shadows. They think the wall and the shadows is universe. It's, it's everything. They don't know that they can move. They're chained. This is something that they have been habituated into. Imagine now one of the those slaves, as it were, were set free. Chains fall off. The person, for the first time ever, turns around, didn't know that turning around was an option recognizing that he was just looking at a wall in shadows and now looks at the flame for the first time behind him. His eyes are hurting. This is where we get the idea that the truth hurts. He's in shock. He probably thinks he has died and seen heaven. He doesn't, right? He comes to his own senses now. He gets up for the first time, walks around the cave, discovers a mouth to the cave that leads to the outside world. He stumbles through, climbs it, and he enters to the outside world for the first time ever. He sees green grass, blue skies, the sun, airs hitting his skin, all of this. He thinks he's died and has gone to glory. He realizes, oh my goodness, this whole time I was a slave and I didn't know it. This whole time I, I, I was looking at shadows and I was comparing my shadows with other shadows. He now wants to run back. He runs back into the cave. He's stumbling to let his other people know, the other, his other friends, that there's another world. But for some reason, he's unable to, to transverse an area in the caves. And so he now is able to only call out to his friends and to his friends, however, to the people who are enslaved, they hear a voice, but it sounds weird because of the echo of the cave. And what they're able to discern, it sounds nuts. Like there's an outside world. I mean, imagine a person on the A train when you're going to work saying, hey, guys, this world that you're living, you're going to Wall Street to work. There's more to life than this. Get out of here, bro. You're some weird preacher. Yeah. And the story ends in the following way. Very amazing. As Plato writes this, the story ends like this. 
Socrates is telling this to Glaucon. If the other prisoners were at that moment set free, one of the first things they would do is kill that guy, kill the messenger, to put him out of his misery because he's just annoying and he's just nuts. And as Plato writes this, he has a person in mind, his teacher, Socrates, who was killed by the Athenian people because of his practice of philosophy. And so for Plato, what does all this mean? Well, those enchained, looking at the shadows on the wall, are persons who have not been properly educated. They have not been, because for Plato, genuine and authentic education is the conversion of the soul towards the light. That's what, right? That, that training of the intellect and the desires. The shadows is like people getting caught up on like, oh, I got this new Mercedes. I got this new house. Or I'm pursuing pleasure, right? The temporary, the, the world of the shadows, the, the, the empirical. Set, being set free from that and the process of escaping the cave to go out into the outside world is the process of education for Plato. And it's painful and it's scary and everything that you thought you knew is being destroyed and deconstructed. You're outside in the cave, you're outside in the world, and this is the world of the contemplative forms. You're seeing, the, you're seeing everything as it actually is. And you realize you were caught up chilling on the block talking about how fresh your kicks are, your sneakers, and selling nickel and dime bags. And you thought this was the world. Wow. I'm using an urban metaphor. Yeah. And very quickly, very quickly, the, and all of this has symbolic right, meaning. The sun itself is, for Plato, the fullness of truth, which, through the light of truth, enlightens all other truths. But the fullness of truth is inaccessible in its totality, the same way the eyes cannot see the sun nakedly because it would be destroyed. But we know that that it is the truth and that the truth is what enlightens all other things. And for Plato, that is God. God is the fullness of truth and good. Last night, I was teaching on Plato. Okay. And and I, I jokingly, but but in a sense, seriously said, if Plato were to write uh, a, a book on dating, what would he say with regards to this whole phenomenon of what we call, particularly here in New York City, um, and it's crude, right? Uh, this language of, oh, I got a side piece. Yeah. What the heck is that? Yeah, right. I love that. That's common language now. Yes, yeah, 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 I got a side piece. I got a couple. It's like I got, I got a side hustle. Like yeah. I got my main job, and I got a side. I got a side hustle, and I and I got my main squeeze, my main boo, right? Uh, and, and then I got a side piece. I may even have two side pieces. For those of wow. you who are urbanly challenged, <laughs> that that means <laughs> that means you you are in, you are uh, supposedly in a committed relationship, and um, you have. Another uh, commitment. Yeah. <laughs> that may or may time. not be a commitment, right? There may be some sort of, um, you know, uh, mutual agreement of some sorts, maybe open yeah. or whatnot. And so I, I posed the question to the class um, in light of Plato's metaphysics and in light of Plato's psychology. Uh, what would he say about this phenomenon? Why is this going on? So I come to Plato, I meet with him in Starbucks and I say, Plato, uh, dude, I, I'm heartbroken. I, my boo, my girl, she cheated on me. And, and, and what's going on? Now, Plato would say to me, Joe, um, 
have you considered that perhaps you were dating a woman who was actually ruled and governed by her appetitive nature rather than her rational nature? And so... I need, I need some definitions. Yeah, yeah. So what Plato said, right. So for, for Plato, he has this picture of the human soul. And, and he's following in this sense in the footsteps of his teacher and master Socrates. He believes that the essential person, the real you, is your soul, which is the invisible. Um, and in that Greek philosophical mode of thinking, there's a strong dualism. There's a strong split between soul and body. It's like you have a body, but you are your soul. It's very platonic through and through. And within the soul, he'll say um, that there are really three main parts. The spirited, which is the way he would say volition or the will. The the animating principle that moves us, right? Those are spirited, the rational, and the rational is is responsible for discipline. Uh, the rational part of us is the ability to reason, to use reason and logic, to see long-term goals and then pursue that. The ability to forfeit uh, short temporary uh, pleasures, say no to that for the sake of the long-term effects, et cetera, et cetera. Um, um, and the appetitive, where we get the word appetite, appetite. Uh, and the appetitive part of the soul, not a bad part. Plato doesn't use this kind of language. Like the appetitive is bad. Suppress the appetitive. Just live the rational. He sees the appetitive as actually essential. It's what gets us out of bed in the morning. It's what gives us passion. It's what uh, drives us to go eat and to procreate as a species, et cetera, et cetera. Would you say like that's the same as desire? Yeah, desire yeah. Or something? like desires, of, um, bodily inclinations. Okay. We'll use that bodily pleasures. Um, and that's not bad. The problem is when that is crowned, that part of the soul is crowned as king and is mm. now ruling the entire soul. Now, he says all of this, for those of you who are interested, he says this in his seminal work, uh, Plato's Republic, The Republic. And, and the way he comes about doing this is actually uh, through a political schema, which we can talk about, because he connects this with politics. Really? Oh, my uh, terrible. It's amazingly sexy stuff. Anyway. <laughs> we should talk about this. Yeah, this is some heavy. I mean, it's it's crazy. But anyway, back to some dating. Advice, right? <laughs> so so, so going to say. important. Yeah, equally important. So Blade is going to say, hey, man, um, you know, you chose to end up in a committed relationship with a woman who it sounds like may have actually been ruled and governed by her lower nature, her repetitive. So what then happens is when the temptation arises, she has not conditioned her will, her spirited part to actually listen and heed to the voice of the rational. Uh, the rational is, hey, I know what I have and it is a good thing. And also, I I, I don't want to hurt him and, and long term. And, and I may not necessarily be so happy in this relationship. Nevertheless, I'm going to, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, so she didn't have that. Her her will wasn't habituated. Interestingly enough, for Plato, he uses the word education. And for both Plato and Aristotle, genuine and authentic education is the training not only of the intellect, but of our desires. The training of both our mind and our heart, as it were. Mm. And she has not been properly catechized. She has not been properly formed. She hasn't been properly educated. And I know when we say the word educated, we think an intellectual like endeavor. Academia. Yeah, just purely that. And there's very little formation. In other words, she didn't, she didn't have the character. She didn't have the moral fiber, the ethical wherewithal to enter into this committed relationship. She could not sustain it. She fell under the temptation. 
And in that sense, though she exclaimed to you that she, in the beginning, has loved you and was there for you, you can only love, this is very interesting, right? You can, using a platonic perspective, one's ability to love is really intimately connected to one's um, uh, development in their soul so that if I am ruled by the appetites, it is impossible for me to really love you. Wow. It is, it's very, even as a friend, right? The temptation to talk behind Lewis's back comes up, right? Somebody saying something like, what about, yeah. And I, I may engage that and forfeit, as it were, uh, uh, this, this, this moral status I must have as you're my friend, you're my boy. I shouldn't be backstabbing you or yeah. doing that, right? Yeah. But if the tantalizing, uh, attractiveness of, of bad mouthing you arises and I engage in that, it's because I succumbed to the appetitive part rather than the rational part. So he uses this dynamic it's very interesting right um and that was a lot it seems like a lot of that has like translated into christianity as well though yes and like pursuing christ yes yes and what do you say no to and what right well interestingly enough for the early church thinkers the early church fathers and mothers um they they this is the reason why persons like Irenaeus, clement of alexandria origin Athanasius, all of these weird and wild names, right? <laughs> From way back in the Those day. Some cool names. Yeah, they are. Imagine you're naming your son Athan- Athanasius. <laughs> but, you know, everyone's going to be calling him A or Ath. Hey, yo, hey. Hey, yo, yo, hey, what's up? <laughs> anyway, they all said, dude, they all said, they were like, oh my goodness, philosophy for the Greeks was like the law for the Jews. God used these vehicles to train them up in preparation for the full and final revelation that is Christ. And so then none of them, except for certain persons like Tertullian, who would say, no, philosophy is dangerous, right? Um, And he had his reasons. He famously said, what does Athens have to do with Jerusalem? Right? They're two different, right? Yeah. Um, But for the most part, the early church recognized, no, um, Christ is actually the fulfillment of what is actually implicitly and explicitly stated in much of the pagan philosophy. Wow. That the philosophy of Plato, Socrates, and Aristotle are in many ways gesturing towards the true and living God in their own paltry ways but, and not so paltry. Ways. But in some ways that philosophy fell short and yes. was teaching something that was... Yes different than yes. what Christ was, che- was yes. teaching. Yeah. So they had uh, what some of the early, like say Justin Martyr, you know, Justin would say, oh, um, Plato um, in his um, in his own development and in his own intellectual capacity and his wisdom, he was able to hone in to, to, to hear, as it were, the logos spermaticos within him. Now, the, that word logos spermaticos is Greek, the, the word, the seed of the word, which is the eternal word. Jesus Christ. Okay. So, so Justin, as a Christian who was trained in philosophy, says Plato gets a lot right in as far as when he, the stuff that he gets right, it's because he's able to hone in on that inherent reason and logic that God has used to create and shape and sustain all that is reality. So like it was always there and Plato discovered some of it. Right. And what good philosophy and let's say in modern context, good science does is that there, there are, 
uh, using this sort of inherent rationality and intelligibility in the world. They're discovering these patterns. And we as Christians say, hey, guess not only those patterns, they, they were put there by a person, God, and the fullness of all those patterns, the fullness of intelligibility itself became a human being. Mm-hmm. flesh in mm-hmm. Jesus Christ, wow. which of course is what you have as the prologue of the gospel of John. In the beginning was the word. Now you, you translate that word, that word, word is logos in Greek. And so John, who's writing this, he's very keen on this very potent philosophical word, right? Today we like logos, what's that? I, okay. But back then that was a very popular word. Uh, it, was, it was part of the lingua franca of, of the time, particularly of the academy. And so he says, oh, yeah, that word you speak of, his, he has a name. His name is Jesus. Wow. And so there's a deep connection. And I know I'm throwing out a lot. No, it's, it's great. And we were supposed to be talking about Plato and, 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 and dating advice. <laughs> no, no. I, I, I guess a question that I have, what would you say to a critic that would accuse you of cherry picking some of Plato's teachings and you're not taking all of Plato's teachings. Yeah. Yeah. Um, It feels that way. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, What I think what would need to be, if if I were to respond uh, to that critique with an apologetic um, sort of uh, context, what I feel then what I would need to do is discover what I am saying as a Christian, first and foremost, in the Torah and in the prophets, which predate right the advent of Christ, um, and find that level of wisdom there. Um, I would also say that in the New Testament, particularly in the writings of Paul the Apostle, that awareness of the intelligibility of the universe is actually articulated there in the New Testament. Now, one could then follow up and say, well, isn't Paul then ripping from the Stoics or from Mm -hmm. ancient Platonic philosophy? One could perhaps run that um, uh, critique unless Paul, in doing what he is doing, is actually um, uh, 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 the development of the inherent logic found already in the Old Testament. Mm. Okay. Revealed in the new vis-a-vis Christ and the spirit. And, and in the, particularly in the teachings of Christ. So I would, I would uh, invite the critic to look carefully at the writings of Justin Martyr, of Clement of Alexandria, and of some of these early church thinkers and how they did this, especially in their time, because that was a critique offered against the church to some of them. And he's like, well, wait a minute, what about this and that? Um, Origen, for instance, when he's responding to Celsus, um, who was a pagan philosopher and rhetorician, and, and he was offering some of these very similar critiques. And the way Origen responds to that, using the Gospels and using the inherent theology in philosophy, excuse me, the theology in the New Testament, is just beautiful and masterful. So you see that there. Yeah. But very quickly, I want to go back to Plato um, with the dating advice. Okay. So two things he would say to me in Starbucks when I say, yo, my girl cheated on me. One, he's going to be like, Joe, um, she was probably rude by her appetitive nature. That's probably the reason what's going on. But then he will 
um, I think also say there's a metaphysical reason. And now this goes into Plato's, uh, what, what is called the theory of the forms. Oh my God, this gets crazy. <laughs> I got a lot of reading to do. Yeah, yeah, this, yeah, it's, it's a lot, it's a lot. But, but, um, in essence, Plato says the world, all of reality is actually a composite, it's two parts. There is the empirical world, the world of the sensorium, mm. the world we can see, taste, touch. This is the world that is conditioned by time. It's conditioned by space. Things come in and out of existence in this world. The chair is here and the chair is not here. There was a time in which Joe Terry did not exist and now here he is. And then there will be a time when he no longer exists, at least in the empirical world. He's in the grave or whatnot. Um, so that we have that reality. You may even say that's the world of science. Yeah. And then you have what he would call the transcendent reality, the world of the forms. And that word forms could, could be translated as ideas, capital I. Um, and these are, this world is eternal. It's forever. Um, it's actually, even though it's invisible to the eye or to the ear, it is more real than the, than the, in the physical world. In fact, the physical world itself, the empirical world, is patterned after and is participating in this transcendent world of the forms. Wow. So Plato will say the following. You have never, or he may even ask the question, have you ever seen a perfect circle? And you think about it and you and, and he's going to say, you've never seen a perfect circle. You've seen intimations of of circles, um, whether you draw it freestyle computer simulated circle, which does a better job than a hand. Yeah. Um, and so he'll say, we, we've never seen a perfect circle, but for the mind, for the soul that has been trained, let's say in mathematics, that person in his or her mind's eye is able to conceive of an ideal circle, mm. the perfect circle. We've never seen perfect yellow. We think until we see one person coming in with a yellow shirt and another person coming in a yellow shirt and we see two different shades of yellow. And if I ask you which one is more yellow, we, we have a difficult time sometimes discerning. But Plato will say to the, to the person who's been educated, right, aesthetically with regards to what yellowness is, yellowness, blackness, whiteness, redness or circleness, right? The identity, the essential nature of these things, they actually don't exist in the empirical. They exist in this other dimension mm. by which the people with yellow shirts, the yellow shirt is participating in yellowness, but it never, it is intimating that, but it never really arrives at the perfection of yellow in the here and now. So is that, is that analogy, was that him Showing proof of the, the ideal, yeah, yeah, of the ideal, of the transcendent. In mm -hmm. one sense, yeah, right. That was some illustrations to to see the difference. Okay, uh, and he'll go on. He'll say, "We've never seen perfect justice, but when we we can conceive of a, of an ideal just, right." And he goes on. But here's how this 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 plays into some of the dating advice, right? He'll say the person who is who's obedient 
to the lordship of their appetites, of their desires, rather than their rational, is a person that that is going to be tethered to the world of the senses. They're unable to rise above the world of the senses into the world of the contemplative forms. Now, with the mind and the soul that has been trained, we can we can actually enter into this transcendent world, which, by the way, for Plato is actually an, an, another dimension. It's not something in our mind. Okay. Okay. Right? It's not something in our mind. That's for Plato. So when we conceive of ideal circle, our mind, as it were, is accessing this otherworldly, this transcendent world, which is more real than whatever circle that we see in the physical, tangible sense. And he's going to say this, those governed by the appetites, oh, they're going to be, watch this now, looking for perfection in the empirical world. Wow. And when we do, because now the question is, wait, why, why, what do you mean looking for perfection? Because Plato's going to say, in one sense, the soul is made to contemplate. The soul is made for the transcendent world. In fact, Plato believed that philosophy ought to be pursued because it is the best way to prepare for death, which is the soul's release, being released from the body and from the physical world to enter in to the transcendent world of the forms. The thing is, is that if the soul has not been prepared for that, you're going to be a wandering spirit on earth, mm. still looking for the, perf the perfect, for the ideal true, the ideal good, the ideal beautiful, and the here and now of time and space while it doesn't exist here. So in essence, bringing it all back, for Plato, I go up to Plato. Plato, why did my girl cheat, cheat on me? This is the important question. This is it. This is Plato. What? What's good, bro? Like, yo, here I, I'm. We we met up at Starbucks, and he, what's going on? Plato's gonna say this, Joe. Check it out. It's it's actually quite simple. Your your boo or your ex, she's made for the ideal. She she longs for that. And guess what, Joe? You ain't the ideal. Neither am I. And the guy she cheated with, neither is he. But she doesn't know how to, to orient herself appropriately to realize that there's nothing in this world that will satisfy. So she, so what happens? She, she fails the commitment. She jumps ship. She's like, oh, the grass is green over there. And so on and so on. And so, hence bad formation, bad ethics. It goes into bad politics. For Plato, we say all the time, we hear all the time people saying, oh, power corrupts people and absolute power corrupts absolutely. For Plato, no. Power is neutral. What the problem is, is that we give power to people who are ruled by their appetites. Jeez.